Copy, shift boss. I got radio check. Yeah, radio is working fine. Yeah, copy all personnel. Yeah, copy, mate. The chair in the vent bag. Yeah, stitcher up there. Thanks, mate. G'day everyone, welcome to Life of Mine, this is uh, Ray White from Ray White Real Estate, your real estate guru, bringing you the uh, final instalment of our finance series for Life of Mine on uh, property. Now I hope you all listened to the shares and superannuation episode, if you haven't, please do so prior to listening to this, or you can listen to them in any order, they're not really a sequential series at all the uh the superannuation episode it, it kicked me into gear as soon as i recorded i'm like well i better i better follow my own bloody advice and i actually i emailed my payroll and said can i please have a form to salary sacrifice my super and the payroll lady sent it to me straight away and yes now i'm putting a hundred dollars per week into my super via salary sacrifice and doing the calcs on it, as I said, because that comes off your top marginal tax rate. That hundred to put that hundred dollars into my super is only costing me fifty five because of the uh, salary sacrifice tax saving compared to if I just earned that money. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty much a free free forty five dollars a week and uh, adds up to an extra five grand a year into my superannuation. So. It's a win-win. I'd highly recommend everyone to do it. Uh, yeah, as I said, just a hundred bucks a week. Hundred bucks. We, we get paid fortnightly, so two hundred bucks a fortnight, and there's an extra five grand in your super to get that compound machine running. So, yeah, hope you all enjoyed that. Anyway, we'll uh, get into the property. But first, as in the previous episodes, I'll read my uh, protective disclaimer. Now, these finance episodes do not constitute financial advice. I am not a financial advisor, and this is general information only, and the info I provide should not be taken as professional advice. Everybody's circumstances are unique, and you should seek independent financial and taxation advice from a qualified person. Thank you very much. That's the last time you'll have to hear that, so sorry to put you through it. So, let's get into property. Now... Everyone will be in different situations that are interested in property and listening to this. Some might be saving to buy their first home. Some people might be considering purchasing an investment property. So so first up, I'll go through the basics of getting a home loan and how much you'll need to save. Now, as I said, there's apologies to people that know a lot of this uh, basic stuff, but I'm sure there's some people out there that don't. Yes, trying to trying to cater for everyone here. So, look, if you're looking to buy a new home, firstly, best advice: go to a mortgage broker. Now, they don't they don't cost you anything. They make all their money off the banks, who provide the loans. So, they they know everything. They they do it every day of the week, and they're worth their weight in gold. And you'll learn a lot more off them than you will compared to listening to a bloody bogan miner sharing property knowledge from uh, from the internet. So. There, I've, I've used mortgage brokers when I've purchased my homes, and they're awesome. They they know all the tricks. They do all the paperwork for you. It's just you literally just sign on the line. So I'd highly, highly recommend going to a mortgage broker initially. So, uh, how much do you need to save? For everyone talks about the house deposit. So essentially. To avoid paying mortgage insurance, now I'll, I'll get into what mortgage insurance is later, you'll have to save 
uh, 20% of the value of the house plus the cost of stamp duty and settlement fees and other expenses. So for a $500,000 house in WA, for example, you would need 119000 cash to avoid paying mortgage insurance. So that's bloody massive. So it's, uh, it's a bit daunting. So we'll, we'll go through what stamp duty and mortgage, mortgage insurance are. So stamp duty, stamp duty is the tax charged on a property purchase and it's, it's charged to whoever's buying the home. So if you sell a home, you don't pay stamp duty. It's when you purchase a home, you pay stamp duty. It's the same as when you have to pay stamp duty when you purchase a car. So now the value, the amount of stamp duty, it, it will increase with the value of the property, though there is some exemptions that apply for eligible first home buyers, which we'll cover briefly later. But um, stamp duty and first home buyers are different in every state. So, for example, in Western Australia, if you're buying a $500,000 house to live in and you're not a first home buyer, you would be required to pay $18,000 in stamp duty. So it's not, it's not bloody, it's not small anyway. So it's, uh, again, that's when people say you have to save 20% for your house. They, it's, you forget about the stamp duty you have to pay on top of that as well. Now, mortgage insurance now that when they'll refer to mortgage insurance as lmi which is lenders mortgage insurance now lmi is the insurance that the purchaser has to pay to protect the lender against the possibility that the purchaser defaults on the loan so the lender being the bank the purchaser being yourself now, and that is, this comes into play when you have a deposit less than 20% of the home value. So as an example, for a half a million dollar house, if you only had $50,000 deposit, which is 10%, so which is a 90, which means you require a 90% loan of 450,000, you would be charged $8,800 mortgage insurance. So the main factors that alter the amount of LMI you have to pay are the amount you want to borrow. So obviously the bigger the loan, the higher the LMI and the amount of deposit you have. So every bit below 20% increases the amount of mortgage insurance you have to pay. So if we combine all that together for a $500,000 house and you only had a $50,000 deposit, you'll be charged an extra $27,000 total to cover both the stamp duty and the mortgage insurance. So even with that 50,000 you need 77 total for the actual deposit. Now, you can either pay this extra 27,000 separately or you can add it on to add it onto your loan, which Adding it on to the loan is the easy option, but it increases your monthly repayments and also the interest you pay over the lifetime of the loan. So, and I'll go through that. I want to focus on this because that's, um, look, I did it on my, the first, my first home I bought and a lot of it was probably because uh, I rushed into it and I probably wasn't educated enough on the implications. Now, Adding it onto the loan, uh, that would change in this case, that would change your loan from 450000 to 477000 for a $500,000 house. Now, let's, let's assume a 4% interest rate. Uh, 
Now, it takes to get that loan from 477 back down to 450, which is your original loan, it'll take three years for the principal to go down that much. And it'll increase your repayments by 130 a month and you'll you'll pay an extra 19,500 in interest over the life of the loan. So I'll reiterate that point. When you add $27,000 onto that loan, that equates to an extra $19,500 interest over the life of the loan. So that, as I said, is just it is the easy option but it can have a lot of implications on the actual repayments and getting, a, getting that equity in your home. So something to consider for this situation is uh, borrowing that money elsewhere, whether it's via a personal loan or a family member, and not adding it onto the loan and paying them both off at the same time. So you'll save a shitload of interest doing it that way, and you'll get way further ahead in the loan cycle. And it it forces you to, because you've got two separate loans, it forces you to pay that $27,000 off quicker, and you're actually bringing that uh, principal in your home down quicker. So that that's it's something something to consider. Look, everyone's situation is unique, and you might make the choice to do that. But there is that is the implications if you do add it onto the loan. Now, now I want to talk about the first home buyers grant. Now, this the first home buyers grants changed numerous times, and it varies from state to state. So originally it was for new and existing homes, but now you pretty much have to buy a brand new home or build a new home to qualify for it. And you can also receive discounts and full exemptions for stamp duty, depending on the value of your property and which state you're in. So the amount of the grant and stamp duty exemptions, as I said, varies from state to state. So if you want to know which what the conditions are specifically for your situation, just Google stamp duty for per state it's it's all over the website so that's it's varies too much from state to state for me to go into it so and again check with your bank or mortgage broker uh, but the first home owners grant will usually count towards your deposit so that will that uh, takes a bit of pressure off that saving so even though it might might only be ten thousand it uh, it does help and depending on I know when I I know the condition when I bought my home was if your home value is less than 500000 in WA, uh, you don't have to pay stamp duty. But that, that that's all changed now. So that, as I said, go on the internet, look how it is state by state because it is very different, varies a lot. Now, people ask about having a guarantor when you're buying a first home. Now... Uh, this is what everyone sees as the easy way out usually. It means you don't have to save for a deposit. Now, a guarantor loan, I'll just give you the, the explanation of it if you don't know. A guarantor loan is when a buyer has a loan guaranteed by someone else. Now, it's usually a family member, usually your parents, and they will essentially put up the deed of their home or something equivalent as an insurance. Now, this allows you to have no deposit and you can borrow the full amount of the house value and even more to cover the stamp duty and conveyancy fees and uh, costs, even costs for bloody renovations. So the main, the main benefit of this is that along with not having to save a deposit is that you don't have to pay mortgage insurance because they've, 
they've put their deed of whatever the business or deed of their home up as the insurance. Now, the guarantor only has to cover the portion of the loan that is above 80% of the value. So once the loan value, this was, this was the case when uh, I dealt with it. I didn't go guarantor, did ask about it. But once the loan value gets below that 80% of the property value, the guarantor arrangement is essentially null and void. But again, check with your mortgage broker and your bank. But that was that was the situation when I ran into it. Now, the con to this whole thing, the guarantor thing, uh, is that your loan, the value of your loan will be massive. And it'll take you a very long time to have any equity value in your home. So when I say equity, that's the portion of your home that you own, that the bank doesn't own, unless your bloody house value goes up in the short term. So I'll give you an example. So say you want to buy a $500,000 house and you have a guarantor and you borrowed $520,000 to cover so that'll cover the that extra twenty grand will cover the stamp duty and conveyancy fees. So for you borrow five hundred twenty thousand to buy a five hundred thousand dollar house. Now to get your loan down to eighty percent, which is when the guarantor arrangement becomes uh, null and void, and when you've actually got twenty percent equity in your house. That will take you 12 years. If you're on a 30-year loan, it'll take you 12 years to get that loan from 520000 down to 400000 So, And this is because you're paying such high interest in the early life of the loan. So as you can see, just to... When I say the... the so that guarantor arrangement will be in effect for a very long time. So... Now, when, when you have your loan below that 80% mark, so for this $500,000 house, when you get it below 400000 now this is assuming the house value doesn't go up, which, is, which has been the case in Perth for the last bloody decade. Now, when you get it to that 80%, it gives you a lot of flexibility to chase cheaper interest rates between banks and because and you can refinance your loan without paying any extra mortgage insurance. So while your loan is above 80% LVR, which is the loan-to-value ratio, you can't do any refinancing or shopping around without paying mortgage insurance. So if you change banks and get it refinanced, you will have to pay the mortgage insurance for that portion that is above 80%. So overall, this is why saving up as much as, as a deposit as possible is the surefire way to get ahead. So it also it also teaches you the valuable principles of saving and respecting mum, respecting money and respecting mum. Respect your mother also, just as a just as a side note. Now these oh, I respected mother mother, but uh, this is something I never bloody had. The that just that good boring way of saving money the, and the respect of it so unfortunately the only guarantee to financial success as i reiterated in the previous episodes is very very slow and very very boring you need to but you need to look at all this hard work you put in now as paying off and making life incredibly easy when you're into your 50s and you're getting close to that uh infamous time of retirement so and it's the same as i explained in the share episodes the the surefire way to make money in any 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 uh, avenue, whether it's property, shares, super, is just the the boring option. And unfortunately, 
saving up for a house deposit is very, very boring. So now that should cover all that for buying, a, I guess, an owner-occupied if you're looking to buy your first home. So that's a, that's a bit of a crash course, I guess. Now, the second portion I want to go into is about investment properties. Now, this investment properties are great for setting yourself up with a future passive income. Now, I did go over this in the share episode. So throughout your life, if you if you inquire, acquire investment properties, multiple investment properties throughout your career, in 30 years time from now, if you when you've got them paid off, you're you're getting that rental income without lifting a finger. So that's what we call a passive income. So it's the same as having a heap of shares and receiving dividends. That those dividends are just essentially bloody money money for nothing because you're not you're not actually doing anything for them. As I said, you're putting the hard yards in when you're young to set yourself up for later on. Now the other benefit of investment properties comes at tax time. So where you can claim numerous things that will aid in lowering your tax, taxable income, which will help you get back some of that top tax bracket money that the government's taking off us. Not taking, it's all for a purpose, roads, hospitals. But look, we if you can get a portion of it back, yippee. So firstly, I want to go into interest rates. Now, the interest rates on investment properties are generally higher than what you'll pay for the home you live in, which is referred to as an owner-occupied. For example, you might be paying 3.8% on your home mortgage, the one you live in, and you might have to pay 4.5% for your investment property. Now, obviously, you can shop around, and this is what the mortgage brokers are for, to find your good deals and mixtures between fixed and variable loans, but let's and this is a is a realistic comparison now people ask about interest only loans now banks have really tightened up on interest only loans and they're not as readily available now now interest only loans attract an even higher interest rate than if you were paying off uh, a principal and interest loan for an investment property now and to the point where you're actually not paying that much more a month for principal and interest because the interest rate for an interest only is so much higher and paying off principal and interest at least you're actually getting somewhere in the loan value so interest only if you were on an interest only loan for 20 years by the end of that 20 years you'll still owe the same amount of money as when that you borrowed at the start so, but that it does it does work in your favor if there's a lot of growth in the property value then you can lower your repayments but uh, in this current economic climate that isn't being seen. So hopefully they're, they're saying they're going to lower interest rates today. So that's a, that's a positive for property investment. So I'll go into the tax benefits of investment properties that I spoke of. Now, the main items that generate a tax deduction within investment properties are depreciation, negative gearing, uh, claiming the mortgage interest that you pay, and there's no tax if you refinance your loan when the property value goes up. So I'll go into each of these. Now, before I get into this, when I refer to a tax deduction, it means that that portion of money reduces your taxable income. It's not a full refund. So for example, a $10,000 tax deduction doesn't mean you get 10000 back in your pocket. It means 10000 less 
that you get taxed on for that year. So that the refund amount depends on what your top tax rate is. So if you earn 200,000, you would only get taxed on 190,000 for a $10,000 tax deduction. So you'd receive a refund of 4,500 for that $10,000 tax deduction. As anything above 100,000 is 180,000 is taxed at 45%. So sorry if this sounds condescending to some of you, but believe me, I talk to a lot of people that misunderstand the concept of a tax deduction. So firstly, claiming mortgage interests. So you can claim the interest component of your loan repayments as a tax deduction. Now this interest is offset against the rental income you receive. So if you receive $15,000 in rental income, which is on average 300 bucks a week, and you pay $19,000 interest on your investment loan, you have a net tax deduction of four grand you can claim. So this doesn't include other claimable expenses and fees associated with owning investment property, but that's the simple crux of it. Now, interest rates interest rates for investment properties are usually higher than that of owner-occupied loans, which I explained before. And the interest component is the highest at, at the start of your loan due to the high principal. So as an example, if you borrow 500000 to buy an investment property, your monthly repayments on a loan with a 4% interest rate are $2,387. Now, the interest charge for that is around 1600 So for 2387 the interest component is $1,600 for the, in the first year of the loan. Now, if you fast forward to the 15th year of the loan, your interest interest component of that twenty three eighty seven will be around thousand and eighty dollars. So as the loan gets older, or as you or as you pay off the principal quicker, the amount of interest you can claim will decrease. So year one will give you a nineteen thousand dollar eight hundred claimable interest portion, whereas year fifteen will only give you a thirteen thousand two hundred and forty interest component to claim as a tax deduction. Now. People look at this thinking, I want to pay heaps of interest because it makes my tax return bigger. Wrong. Wrong. Now, you only get a portion of the interest back, namely whichever ta- based on whichever tax bracket you fall into. So you'll never get more than 45% of it back, and that, that's only if you earn well over $100,000 a year. So long and the short, the less interest you pay the more principal you pay off and the more of that house is yours and the less that is the bank's. So as I said, if you're, if you're positively geared, which means you're making more rental income than the interest you're paying, it means you're making money. So I'll reiterate this later, but yeah, if a lot of people get it in their head that they want to pay more interest to claim more of a tax deduction, but it just means you're losing more money. Okay, so now depreciation. That's the other one of the other tax components. Now, depreciation is the that's the lowering of the building and contents value over time. So it's it's essential if you get an investment property, it's essential you get a depreciation schedule done by a quantity surveyor as soon as you want to utilize the property as an investment property. So this schedule will tell you the amount of depreciation you can claim for capital allowance and capital works for each of the subsequent following years. So for example, a new $400,000 property 
um, you might be able to claim between $5,000 and $8,000 off your taxable income for depreciation. So if you're getting taxed at the $0.45 cent top bracket, um, that's a refund of $2,250 to $3,600. So the depreciation laws actually changed in 2017. So you now can't claim depreciation for plant and equipment assets so like such as your your aircon units or your solar panels or your carpet that are second in second hand residential properties that were that were bought after 9th of may 2017 so if it's a new property you can but if they're second hand properties you can't claim that for depreciation so yes if you if you purchased a second hand investment property prior to the date may 9th 2017 the old rules still apply so you're all good so to get a depreciation schedule done it'll cost you around 500 dollars. but that that'll tell you the that you'll be able to give you to, to your accountant or if you do, do your tax yourself that'll tell you how much depreciation to claim each year for the next bloody 40 years it'll have on the thing now negative gearing so essentially uh money that you lose in property can be claimed as a tax deduction against other income that's what negative gearing is so if your interest repayments and property expenses are greater than the rental income you receive you can claim the difference as a tax deduction now this is the law that bill shorten was going to change when he if he got elected so you wouldn't have been able to claim the difference as a loss so if you went negative it it would have been all null and void it just would have evened out you wouldn't have been able to claim a negative gearing tax deduction so good on your scomo for winning as as john a johnson from australian resources contracting said if you if you're a small business owner or investor voting for labor would have been the same as a chicken voting for colonel sanders so anyway now just to be clear only the interest portion of your home loan repayments contributes towards negative gearing, not the principal component. So if you're paying an interest-only loan, then obviously the whole of your repayments is counted towards the expenses. But if you're paying principal and interest, you can only put the interest component in as an expense. So the way I look at it, though, this is my personal opinion. I know this might vary among property experts but unless you're expecting a significant rise in the property value in the short term negative gearing means that you are losing money so if you have a positively geared property meaning that your rental income is greater than all of your expenses that means you're making money and that's what we're all in it for and as i said i'm sure property experts will give you a more varied and detailed explanation but that's my simple view we're in it to make money money so being positively geared and paying tax is a good thing because it means you're making a profit so the next item um, is you don't have to pay tax on money you get back out of your loan if you refinance or you redraw so let's say you bought a five hundred thousand dollar house with an eighty percent loan, so you had a hundred grand deposit or one hundred and twenty with stamp duty, and you borrowed four hundred thousand. So four hundred thousand dollar loan gave you a five hundred thousand dollar house. So let's say in the following five years you paid off fifty grand in principal, and the house value also went up to six hundred and fifty thousand. So five years later, the situation you'll be in, you'll have a loan that's at now three hundred and fifty thousand and a house valued at 650000 
So you can you can refinance your home loan and bring it back up to that 80% value of the house without paying any stamp duties or or mortgage insurances and, and get the excess cash back tax-free. So in that case, you would refinance the loan back to 520000 which is 80% of 650. So that would leave you with $170,000 cash in your pocket minus any refinancing fees, which likely wouldn't be more than a thousand bucks. So as I said, so the property value's gone up, you've paid a bit off your loan, and for that $650,000 house, you've then refinanced the loan back to 520,000, and you take the excess 170,000 in cash. So the downside of this though, is now when you refinance, you restart your loan at a 30 year loan example for 520,000. So let's just assume a 4% interest rate for basic, even though you can get a lot cheaper than that these days, but let's just assume 4%. Now, your initial repayments on the original loan would have been $1,909 a month. This is, oh, Chloe's uh, giving me a hand doing this. You're going, to be, you're going to be good with money, aren't you, Chloe? You're not going to be a dickhead like Dad was, aren't you? Yes, I'm trying to grab the microphone. Yes, good, good girl. Um, now... Where was I? The yes, you're restarting your loan, five hundred twenty thousand, four percent interest rate. Now your initial repayments would have been nineteen hundred and nine dollars a month. Now your new repayments would increase by nearly five hundred bucks to twenty four eighty two a month. So also your annual annual interest component would go from fourteen thousand dollars to twenty thousand dollars, twenty thousand six hundred. So as good as that cash is, you, you do set yourself back a lot in paying off that loan and reaching that ultimate stage of fully owning, owning the home. So everyone's circumstances are different. And look, doing this might allow you to buy more properties and leverage, leverage yourself as a property investor, but there's definitely pros and cons. That's uh, everyone's, everyone's different. And yes, just I'm, I'm here to present positive and negative so the simple way another simple way to do this is uh, having a redraw set up on your mortgage so any excess cash you put into your mortgage will be available to redraw so when it but when it sits in there it's actually reducing the amount of interest you pay so you're effectively using your mortgage as a high interest savings account so where you get where you earn four percent on extra, any extra dollar you do that via an interest deduction so when you when you need to access that spare money for whatever reason, you simply draw it back out. But the whole time it's just it's sitting in there reducing the lifetime of your loan by via paying less interest. So you won't that avoids your refinancing, but that doesn't if the actual house value goes up, that won't uh, give you any extra money. If to take that into account, you'd have to fully refinance your loan. But if you're wanting to just draw extra cash out uh, periodically whenever you need it the redraw is the way to go so if you're interested in more info on property i'd recommend uh, there's a good podcast out there called the property couch it's hosted by ben kingsley and bryce holdaway and they're they're buyers agents i think they're based in uh, victoria but buyers agents they offer offer a service if you're looking to buy a property they'll you pay them a fixed fee 
and they will essentially hunt down a good property and take you through the whole process and look for which property, uh, which investment property suits your needs, whether you're looking for a high yielding property, high rental income property, or you're looking for a property that's going to uh, undergo high capital growth and go up in value. As I said, everyone's circumstances are different and these uh, buyer's agents, they tailor to your needs. So I might actually, here's a bit of a shout out to Ben and Bryce, I might try to get the guys on here and they will uh, give the miners a more detailed overview of the investment property side of things. And as I said, a lot of the stuff I've said today, they will probably say the complete opposite because sometimes uh, refinancing and paying interest only and uh, negative gearing is actually a positive thing for long-term property investing, especially if you're buying houses in areas where the capital growth will yield you a lot of, a lot of uh, future income. So as I said, everyone's circumstances are different, but unfortunately we're in a bit of a stagnant property environment at the moment, but hopefully the word is Perth's going up. So anyway, I'll get I'll get on to Bryce and Ben and uh, wonder if, they, oh, I reckon, why, why wouldn't they want to come on? So yeah, thanks very much everyone and that'll conclude the finance series. I hope you all enjoyed it and if you haven't listened to the prior two episodes on shares and super, make sure you head back and have a listen. And thank you very much. And remember, don't pay bloody mortgage insurance if you don't have to. Cheers.